John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 548.JM0302, certificate number 38646, the Great Tea Race. Clipper Ships by Nat Montini. Me and my dad McMiles are Clipper Ships. I like Clipper Ships because they are fast. Clipper Ships sail in the ocean. Clipper Ships never sail on rivers or lakes. Clipper ships have lots of sails when they're made out of wood. I know you've been to London, John. I've been to London. I've been to France. I'm not going to ask about underpants. <laughs> I wanted to ask about Greenwich. You ever been to the? Uh, I have not out- been to the observatory. City of Greenwich. No, and it, it seems like the type of thing that I know I would have done, but the, I incredibly I, on brand. I never did. I, I, you know, most of the time, I most of the times I've been in London, I've either been working as a musician or hitchhiking around as a vagabond i never went like as a tourist during your next time working as a musician or hitchhiking as a vagabond yes take a day and go to take greenwich. a saturday go to greenwich it's it's great there's the observatory so you can stand on the prime me- prime meridian and that uh, here, here's my question about the prime meridian they have it like chalked out on the ground right yes and then for all it, of england does it just go to the <laughs> gate and stop that's what i was gonna say does it go all the way down it continues all the way to the coast <laughs> there's a guy with one of those things that they used to make the center line in soccer and he just rolls, just rolls up and down every He's, morning yeah maybe that would be a good job for you that would be a, oh so meditative just pushing one of those little limestone things from the white cliffs of dover up to hadrian's wall or wherever the prime meridian hits the North Sea. I think of that kind of, no, no, just go to Hadrian's Wall. Don't go any further. <laughs> Scotland but, doesn't get a line. <laughs> and then uh, and then there's a, there's a little man with a rowboat waiting for you that will sail you out into the ocean. There's a Scottish man waiting with a similar device, but his is plaid. His produces a plaid line. Have you been? Yes. Which is why I pretended to be interested in you to tell a story about yeah. me. No, that's, no, of course. That's the omnibus way. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of the cornerstones of our friendship. I just wanted to recommend... Greenwich, because it's there's a little courtyard where you can take your picture on the Prime Meridian, and and you know the related observatory stuff is cool. But there's also a really great maritime museum about you know the history of British awful things done to the world. Oh, I thought you were. That's saying, not what they call it. I thought you were saying the the history of British awful because they do use that in <laughs> you, a lot of soups and you, stews. Yeah, you get that at the cafeteria after you've seen the museum. You can order awful and awful on toast, awful on a scone. <laughs> awful in a, a awful under uh, mashed potatoes. They call that awful in the hole. Do you oof? 
do you um does it strike you in 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 moments like that that um we think of a place like Greenwich as a uh, it it has this this special and particular significance, like a scientific or mathematical meaning, right? But, but it's there, also a place with like a McDonald's and a Boots and a yeah, it's a town, right? Where there just there are people who have never even heard of, of Greenwich Mean Time. <laughs> like when they there. hear Greenwich, they think of whatever their Class C f- football team is, right. football league team, or whatever you know. So what is the town? Ta- what is the character of the town? Is it? I mean, it's in the southeast. It's, a, so it's, it's, a, it's it's on the Thames. It's it's not that far outside of London. Right. I mean, you can take the tube. I, we took. Um, we took a little boat there, like river cruises, because we were there oh, sure. in the summer. And there's lawns. There's, you know, I think there's there's a lot of cool old buildings there because of the Admiralty. So there's like lawns kind of sloping down, and uh, and you know, a very touristy town center, of course. So is it on the other side of the tide dam, or is, is it on the outside or the inside? That's a good question. I want to say it's inside the tide dam, and you know what? I don't actually care enough to look up. Oh, right on. To look it up. Maybe, you know, this is going to be a moment where somebody's going to feel smarter than us. Yes. Someone's going to going to comment on our Twitter feeds. Except I didn't, I said I didn't care as I'm Googling Tam's barrier map. Know, you know, you do, you do care. Like I want to not the care. thing is I care. <laughs> How come you're not looking it up then? <laughs> because I'm Mr. Believe it or I, not, I, I care. I have other things to think about. Greenwich is yes. Inside. Yes. But it's, it's kind of one of the last big things before the, the Thames barrier. Uh, as you head east to the sea. Uh, and w- the the third thing, I think the third big attraction there besides get your picture on the Prime Meridian, uh, go to the, whatever the Maritime Museum is called, you can see the Cuddy Sark. You can, you can board. The, 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 the bottle of, uh, of cheap whiskey? What yeah, is- there's just, there's just one bottle <laughs> of Cuddy Sark whiskey. Cuddy Sark whiskey has, I don't know if you, remember or if you were in a state to remember it's got a clipper ship on the label yes it is named for maybe the most famous and most beautiful of the clipper ships of the golden age of sail the like three masted super ships three masts and then every mast with uh one million sails right for a total of three million now we talked about the we talked about this era uh sort of during the um, during the SS uh, United States. Oh right. Oh no. Wait, no, it was the other the other show we did about um, about the 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 fastest ship across the Atlantic. Was that also the SS United States, or or did we do another? Did we do an? Uh, we did a show about the fastest ship to cross the Atlantic. Did we do an episode on the? It, there was a trophy for the fastest ship across oh, the Atlantic. Right. We it, did do that. It might have been the SS United States. Let's say it was. Well, it was one, either that or another episode. <laughs> one of these people who's been telling us they listened to 18,000 minutes of Omnibus this year can chime in because they just heard this and every maritime Omnibus and they can correct us. But the Cuddy Sark was built in that era, the late 19th century, uh, when these these giant ships were had become a technology that was really plying the world's oceans. And we think of it as like this amazing era. And in fact, it was like a week and a half. I'm, right, right. I mean, that's not true, but like the 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 technology was perfected just, just in time to go away. Right, just as the steam engine and iron hold ships made it obsolete. Uh, is there what's a, a modern example of that? Uh, well, like, it's the, the another example from the 19th century is oh, the Erie Canal. 
<laughs> right. Which was completed just in time for the railroad. I was thinking of those CD players where you could literally stack 150 of your CDs. Right. And then you could just play any piece of music you owned after a bit of a jukebox. Bzz, bzz. <laughs> well, you, you could have them bolted in the trunk of your car, remember? Yeah. Like, I, had, I had a six CD changer in my trunk. Car phones are, are one, right? That... that I mean, having a car phone was such a such a big deal, and then but can you imagine? We all had them. Can you imagine buying one of those big? I don't know what the biggest CD changer was—a so fifty or a hundred CD changer. Right, those things were like were like cinder blocks. Yeah, and that, this is going to be the basis of your listening yeah. library for years, and then two days later, the iPod comes out. Well, I mean, that I, I feel that way about all the because of all the friends I had that were mu- in the music industry. I knew so many people who had an entire room of their house, like a like a full bedroom. Just devoted to CDs, just walls of CDs, floor to ceiling. That's, I mean, you kind of had this, right? I did. I, you know, I eventually, I don't really fetishize CDs, so I kind of moved them to one of those binders. Right. I was a binder guy, just because, but it was for space reasons. But my brother, who is, you know, the biggest and most knowledgeable music fan, well, in the family, but also that I know, still has just this basement lined by CDs and no desire to go virtual or digital. My mom. Uh, went through my room of CDs a couple of years ago. Threw out all your comics. Uh, she threw out all my all, all my baseball cards. No, she went and decided she was going to listen to every CD <laughs> and rate it. Wait, uh, not every not every long winter CD. Every CD. Every you CD. Owned? So she started just uh, at the beginning. At the beginning, Ace of Base. Listened to every CD and put a little post-it note on them <laughs> with her capsule review. Wait, this is my favorite story about your mom. And, and you know, and the reviews are things like uh, boring country, out-of-tune vocals, and then she would put it in a, in a pile like this. Is, is there like a pitchfork 3.8? She, did, she didn't rate them that way, but there were, it was very clear whether she liked it or not, and then a whole bunch of them just had a post-it note on it that said, No. <laughs> <laughs> and each one written in a slightly different, you know, so I just have all these different colored post-it notes, just like, no, no, no. I, I, I thought about making a gif of them. Do you think she listened to every, uh, a gif? Do you think she listened to every song? Uh, uh, a gif. Yes. She definitely is a completist. Like she just put in a, a Fugazi CD and just. Just was like, let's, I mean, I don't know. Maybe she, maybe if it was, if she was three songs into a CD and it was, boring slow out of tune country i she probably popped it and said i i get the gist i get the gif <laughs> i get the gist <laughs> uh the cutty sark the whiskey was named for kind of the pinnacle of of uh the british clipper ship technology and it's it's been rest- i think there were you know a series of fires mean the cutty sark you get to walk aboard and learn about the tea trade today uh is not I don't know if any sure. of those boards sure. were actually the elm that was being trod by, uh, uh, what do you call a British sailor? A salt? A limey? Uh, uh, yeah, right. They're a, all named uh, for things you put in a, a margarita glass. A cask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a tequila. Uh, well, but, you know, you and I have been sloughing off cells since the day we were born. We're Sure. We're, we're not. Uh, there's no con- uh, contingent or component of us that... That exists right all the way through our lives. I think it, it's the speed varies with different parts of your body. Like some, yeah, some parts that cells are going so fast that you're a different person than you were two months ago. Others, I think, can literally last decades. I can't remember if maybe brain neurons are the longest. But yes, I feel like my spleen is like the core of my body. And I'm it's, just, the, it's the oldest. I'm just all spleen, and it's just it's 
the but, old, it's never sloughed off a single. But don't you want it to be sloughing? No, don't you want the rejuvenation? It's never forgotten a single insult. It just sits there, splenetic sure, in its glory. We're all uh, George Washington's hatchet or whatever the metaphor is for the, the thing that's changing. You know, this is actually the, the idea how much of the Cuddy Sark is really the Cuddy Sark is like a metaphysics. Uh, uh, it's like a thought experiment. Uh, it's called the ship of Theseus. Yep. And, um, and it's like, it's like one of the oldest thought experiments in philosophy. Philosophers are still confused. The, here it is. Theseus is on a ship and he's heading to sea. Ahead of him, there are six people that he will run over. Does he change the course of the ship to run over different people? <laughs> no, the ship of Theseus is uh, how much? How many boards can you replace in uh, in a ship and have that ship yes. be the same? Sh- what is ship the identity? Because obviously, you know, you can replace any given board, and it's still no the ship problem. of Theseus. But if you were to build an exact replica, it wouldn't be. So, at what point did it change? It's right. uh, the kind of the, the colonial version I always think of is like my grandfather's axe. You know, the, oh, he, right. you replaced he replaced the, the head twice, the handle three times, but it's still my grandfather's axe yeah. somehow. Well, we see it a lot here in Seattle because we have that sh- that center for wooden boats and they restore old ships that where the, you know, the wood boring worms have, have ruined the keel. And so they take it all, take all this great old growth stuff out and replace it. But yeah, at a certain point you just have the, um, the, it's the steering wheel is the only thing left. Even though it's largely a replica or at least a very, very, uh, elaborate restoration. It's still fun to see because you can just see the scale of this thing. It's, it's tight quarters, even yeah. though it's a big ship. I, when I was a kid, my dad actually built, he got briefly got into model building. And, ship in a bottle? And it was not in a bottle. <laughs> I wish. That seems like something your dad would do. With, you got the tools to raise the sails yeah. through the, through how the mouth he, of the bottle. How did he do it? No, he built a big elaborate model of the Cuddy Sark. So I always thought this was like the most famous ship because it was the one we had in our house. Oh, but it's pretty famous, like because it, it survived. Um, the name, the odd name, actually comes from a Robert Burns poem about a witch named uh, his famous poem Tam O'Shanter about a witch called Nanny D, who is a topless witch. She's she's the figurehead, the sexy figurehead of the Cuddy Sark. Really? Yeah. Oh. Even, even in Victorian times, ships were allowed to have just the most remarkable uh, female contours. Well, sure. I, I always thought it was Liberty uh, crossing the barricade. Uh, the, the topless... Do, do all bare-breasted 19th century women look the same to you, John? That's... They kind of do. I'm, I'm sorry to, to lump them all together, but uh, to lump them all together. But but you're saying that the bare-breasted uh, like figurehead of a ship... It's is... a Scottish witch. And are, are a lot of them witches? I don't think so. This is just an unusual case. In in the poem, so uh, a sark is like a kind of a chemise, like a, a sexy, uh, well, not a but just an under, a woman's undergarment. Go on. But in this case, <laughs> we can extend this part of the show as long as you need. But in this case, it's a cutty sark. It's been shortened. So it's a very revealing uh-huh. chemise. So, so this ship is named for a, like a, a sexy Victoria's Secret item. She's a sexy witch? She is the sexy kind of witch, and uh, Tam O'Shanter, the title character, you know, seeing this sexy witch in a nice short uh, underskirt, says, "Wheel done, Cuddy Sark." Like, nice job, short skirt. Which I'm sure is what you or I would say were we to see a witch cavorting in a absolutely in a, in a short <clears throat> underskirt. I don't know if we'd name a a big 
national symbol after it. I would, <laughs> really, if I were in charge. I mean, Sarah Jessica Parker in uh, in that Bette Midler witch movie. I, <laughs> I, 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 uh, I have a figurehead of her on my truck. That's your sexiest witch. That is that the sexiest. Is that well, Sabrina is a pretty sexy witch, but she's she's just a teen. What about uh, the witches of Eastwick? Cher, Susan Sarandon, and Michelle oh, Pfeiffer, each more beautiful than the last. Those are truly some sexy witches. The world is full of sexy you're witches. Right, we you're don't want, right. We don't want to just limit it to... You know what? I've been bewitched an awful <laughs> lot in my life. Sure. I mean, you can't beat Elizabeth Montgomery. True. Uh, winky, winky, winky. I don't know. What would be the equivalent today of naming a ship for a uh, a short, for a revealing undergarment? What would it? What would it be? I mean, what, like we, naming naming a naming a NASA calling a space shuttle the Wonder Bra or something. We well, yeah, but you, it's not like a you don't want it to be like a sports bra, like like the the SS Spanx. <laughs> did, I, did I ever tell you I was in a store in New York and I was looking for a Christmas present for a friend and um and I was sort of going through the garments and there were all these like really cool little outfits. <clears throat> by this, what was to me a brand new company, Spanx. With an X. With an X. And I was like, that's kind of a racy name, like Spanx. And so I took a couple of these things that I thought were cute up to the counter, and I was like, I want to get these. And the the woman behind the counter was like, who are you buying these for? <laughs> and I said, oh, you know, my girlfriend, or, you know, I'm getting them Christmas presents for a lady. And she was like, you do not want to give these. As, you do not want to buy these as a Christmas present. Put these back. And I was like, what? And she was like, these are things women buy for themselves. What's the what's the shapewear anniversary? Uh, oh, right. <laughs> you're you're the, the 17. Third, third year, right? <laughs> no, no. I think, you do, I think you have to be married for 25 years before you buy somebody Spanx. <laughs> But I, I got a, and then I, then I told the story and, uh, and the woman confirmed that if I had bought her Spanx, it would have been a, a real relationship ender. Uh, you would have got the bad kinds of Spanx. So what would you name a space shuttle if you were naming it after a lady's undergarment? <laughs> it's just not an option we have today. Can you have a space shuttle called Madonna's Cone Bra from the, uh, from the Express Yourself tour? The USS Thigh High? <laughs> <laughs> the CFM. Uh... And so, you know, and the Cuddy Sark is just a beautiful ship in its restored form. You know, we've mentioned the three masts, each with supplement, you know, the more sails they figured out how to put on these things that, you know, it's as wide as it is tall, you know, just to catch more of the wind. So you've got these supplementary stay sails, you've got studding sails, you've got Moonraker sails, which is the is that really the, the most beautiful name of sail. Is that the title? The yeah. Moonrakers. Yeah, the... <gasps> The Fleming, the Ian Fleming book and the Bond movie are named for a kind of sail. Oh, that's wonderful. And, the, and you, you know, if you can picture the, the hull of a clipper ship, it's also, you know, a beautiful curve. Um, the funny thing is these things were, I found these things are designed with, with almost no math or engineering know-how. They would just build one based on some guy's theory. At best, maybe he had a, like a toy in a bathtub. Uh, but they would just build them according to what had been fast so far. Hey, this new Dutch design looks really good let's build one of these but we'll make the stern wider or really? or we'll increase the tumble home or the flare or you know these weird uh dimensions to get used to describe ship hulls because maritime engineering like hyd- hydrological engineering i guess what what is there's a term for it um but it's an incredible science and and there's well, today there's, you can model it with with Calculus and curves. And that wasn't true in the 19th century, the era of calculus and curves? Calculus and curves, I guess, were new enough that nobody was, uh, and maybe, I don't know, maybe there's just complexities to the way 
hulls react to waves that, you know, you, you need big math. You need computer, uh, number crunching for, I don't know. Cause it seems like you could throw moonrakers ad nauseum on the top of these ships, but they're going to be things that, that check the speed. Yeah. It's mostly water that's checking. Speed. I mean, when it gets right down to it, we're going to talk about these beautiful, graceful things just flitting over the seas like birds. And in fact, they, they went about 13 miles an hour, right? You know, that's, and that feels very fast. I mean, these things would also just sure up and down. They were no fun even for an experienced sailor. I think the fastest speed ever recorded on a clipper ship was uh, about 17 knots. So 20 miles an hour. And that's just like as fast as the technology can go. They kind of are like the, <clears throat> the new Chevy Camaros. They look really <laughs> fast uh, and whether or not they are fast or not. Well, it's a, it's a different scale. Like even today's container ships, which I know are not going as fast as you can go. There's fuel efficiency to think about as well. But even a container ship at full speed today can't go above 30 miles an hour. Right. So, you know, these ships are going two thirds as fast as you would get from China to, to West Coast ports today. Um, and it feels incredibly fast because you're just on an amusement park ride for months. Until they are becalmed in the Sargasso Sea. Right. No number of moonrakers <laughs> is going to save you from the... Horse latitudes. <laughs> Why do we all know how to say like dozens of these weird sea things, but, but we don't know what they mean? Yeah, I guess it's pirates. Um, yeah, so a lot of it's just trial and error. When, you know, clipper ships were kind of made possible by the invention of what's called the Aberdeen Bow in 1839. And uh, the guy who, you know, first made a, a schooner with this shape, uh, everybody was like, no, 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 that's not what boats look like. And he's like, no, I think this is going to be faster, you know, better performance. And, you know, nobody knew until they built the whole thing and put it in the ocean. And they're like, oh, wow, this one is faster than what the What is the ones. Aberdeen bow? Oh, I don't know. It's some kind of bow. <laughs> <laughs> imagine a bow, but then imagine a really sleek a and Scottish cool one. Scottishy one. It's plaid. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's named for Aberdeen, Washington. Uh-huh. It's got... Uh, it's, just got, it's made out of grunge. It's yeah, Also it's plaid. Plaid. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's flannel. It's a flannel covered bow but these ships are gorgeous they have a sleek look that even today kind of matches with our idea of what connotes speed and performance and then you know they would just have some of them twenty six thousand square feet of sails aloft like half an acre of canvas in the air at once and i you know i was thinking about this today i wonder if this is the first time that an like an item of transportation and maybe even any industrial item becomes like is thought of as beautiful, you know, a, a curvy fetish item. It, it, we take it for granted today that that's how a sports car will look. That's how a fighter jet will look, you know, just as a result of both scientific and aesthetic factors. But I mean, is this the first time anybody was like, man, that's a sexy industrial item? I mean, you have to wonder because this is the era when, uh, when materials are expensive and labor is cheap, <laughs> right? And so, it didn't cost that much more to make things beautiful. Uh, yeah, consumer goods would have been good quality. Well, and and uh, like your your um, your Surrey with a fringe on top, your locomotive, um, those things were all kind of made. I mean, this is the, when you, when you take apart an old factory and you realize that the flywheel is made with this sort of elegance and, and design that now we would just stamp it out. But those old, those old 
machines were, I don't know, there seemed to be like a, when things were made by hand, there was always that extra little bit of craftsmanship that went into making things. I agree. But, but that takes some know-how to see, I think. Yeah. Like in the case of a clipper ship, like every like five-year-old kid is going to be like, whoa. Look it, at it, the it, angel. Yeah. And, and that's not true of, you know, early locomotives, which were awe-inspiring for different reasons, but not because they of have their, this. They're not beautiful. Not their, sleek, their sleekness or their femininity or, you know, whatever these attributes that these ships had. It's interesting. If you look at the USS Constitution, which, again, is another one of these ship of Theseus where how much of the Constitution is still the Constitution, it predates... That's true the, of the... That's also true of the document as well. Oof. <laughs> oof. Um, oh, too political, Ken. Uh, stop. Easy. What about these clowns in Congress? That's people, what I think. People are going to cancel their subscriptions. <laughs> uh, the Constitution predates the Cuddy Sark by 100 years, and it also is a three-masted ship, but the, but the way the... The design has evolved from the Constitution to the Cuddy Sark. You I'm, just I'm gonna look at it and give it a rating like your mom. Okay. Not like I give your mom a rating, like she rates your CDs. Right. The Constitution just seems much closer to I mean it in looks its, it looks good though. Huh? It does. But in its day it would have been like the most banging ship. It was boats. That's I think that's why the patriarchy uses she for boats. Like it was the only good looking thing that anybody had built. Right. You know? Oh, she is so, so gorgeous. So from the male gaze, you're like, yeah, this is yeah. A ship. Look at her look at her look at her billowing sails. And- <laughs> this is a pretty racy episode of Omnibus. I'm afraid maybe I'm just bringing a lot of You knew it was going to be when up. we started talking about tea shipping from China. Yes. Sure. Uh, by the way, the Aberdeen bow is just a narrower, sleeker bow. You know, a surprisingly sharp hull. You know, cutting the cutting through the waves. It seems like that would be self-explanatory. Like, yeah, I mean, make... anybody who's ever pushed a pushed a, a building block through a sandbox, right? Right. Make the front skinny and uh, sharp. And yet, in an era where things were done the way your father did it, there was skepticism. The clipper ships were mostly used for one thing: getting tea from. Asian fields to European uh, aristocracy. And then, yeah, and then the middle class. Uh, interesting. It the was, tea trade had become such a thing by this point. Uh, it, you know, it took a while. Uh, you know, Portug- the Portuguese, when they first contacted China and then Japan in the 16th century, saw tea getting drunk, and then the Dutch, and then the British. It didn't catch on in Europe until, I mean, what helps in the 17th century, it didn't get to Britain until Catherine of Braganza from Portugal. I think we talked about this in the uh, episode on lunch, whatever that episode was about about uh, mo- the invention of modern mealtimes. Oh. Uh, Catherine of Braganza married Charles II and uh, brought her tea-drinking habit and you know the fashion for it to the court. Um but, you know, it takes a ton of effort to get tea from Asia to Europe at that time to the degree that, like, a pound of tea back then would cost somebody a month's pay. Wow. Um, and so, and it became uh, a powerful political and economic chip, kind of the basis of geopolitics at the time, in a way. You know, Charles, as, as it caught on in England, Charles II's government banned uh, tea on, on the grounds that it was somehow seditious. And then realized they could tax the hell out of it and use that to fund warfare. Um, the East India Company had a monopoly on it, which just created this incredible smuggling market 
and we're kind of imagining a romantic thing with pirates. No, this is like straight up some Sinaloa cartel stuff where uh, these awful gangs just control parts of Kent or, you know, the British and European coastlines where the locals all live in fear of these of these awful tea narco terrorists because wow. um, there's just so much money in it. Uh, when you adjust for inflation, the 116th richest person of all time was John Hancock. Who, Not our John Hancock. Our John Hancock. Famous today for his association with the American Revolution, but the reason why he got that job is because he was by far the richest man in America. Uh, net worth in modern dollars, $20 billion, all on tea trading. Whoa. So his big signature was... Uh... Right. Was was well earned, right? He's he's used well, to signing it, with big with big letters. It match yes, it matches his view of his own importance. Of course, my name would be here. I am literally the Rockefeller of my day. Did he fund the American Revolution in any great? Oh, that's an interesting measure? question. If he didn't, what a d- right? Right, he's going to get his name on the document. He he should have been he should have been. Um, when you think of all those guys shivering guns. in Valley Forge. And meanwhile, John Hancock, with his twenty billion modern U.S. dollars, right? He's, he's lighting fil- his cigar with in guinea Philadelphia. Fowl. Uh, he did, in fact, use the the proceeds from his his tea mercantile business for the army. Uh, but I guess there's still last mile problems in getting troops fed and whatnot. But it makes the American Revolutionary uh, Boston Tea Party. It really makes it, uh, right. it gives it a different cast if, if tea is the cocaine yeah, of the day. We think of tea as kind of a frippery, but back then it was just the basis of so much trade and, uh, and international squabbling. And the problem was tea season was pretty short, you know, for the beginning in May. And then for the next few months, uh, China would produce its tea for the year. And, you know, in an era before you could really keep stuff well. And when there wasn't that much of it, you know, all of last year's tea was gone or super expensive. So how to get that tea back in time uh, was a huge deal. And tea, it's like uh, like rice won't grow at home. Right. Tea also, you can't just uh, start growing tea in, in Oxfordshire. Exactly. Like it's got to come off a boat and that boat has to go all the way around, you know, from China down... Past Taiwan, South China Sea, Indian Ocean, around the Cape of Good Hope, or up around the side of Africa, Azores, Europe, and then, you know, London, if that's where it's going. Uh, And you could bring, you know, one of these, it was one of the few commodities that would pack small enough and yet be worth enough to make that clipper ship investment worthwhile. Yeah. You know, because, you know, these things with their, they're not, they're not just today's giant container ships where you could also load it with big bags of heavy rice or tractors or whatever not that they had tractors um so you could put 500 tons of tea in one of these things and if you sell it for seven pounds a ton you know you could pay off your ship in in three or four years especially because there was a premium on speed the first clipper ship that got back to london with the first tea of the year would get a 10 percent premium and that's not just ceremonial like that's that's eager tea merchants who, right. who, who finally have product that's earl gray sitting there at the dockside <laughs> just waiting <laughs> just looking at his phone um, and, uh, you know, the other thing that actually led to this tea trade from China is finally we found something that we, uh, apparently we means all white people, sure. uh, Europe had discovered something that China wanted and that was opium. 
Like China did not want to open its ports to European products. The trade only worked if you could bring something over in your ship as well. And so... Where were we getting the opium? The, India. So you, you get, you know, the British Empire gets its opium from India, takes China, where it's illegal, where the government is desperately trying to keep its people off the stuff and out of the opium dens. And, you know, Europe illegally pumps China full of opium, fills the empty holds with coffers of tea, and back they head. And so were, were there any arms exchanged for hostages in this whole plan? <laughs> did, the, did the Contras Who's get involved? Viscount uh, Oliver of North. <laughs> I guess Lord North. There you go. Um, so the whole, so all that 19th century imagery of the opium dens of China, that was all completely. Yeah we, yeah. we think of that. We think of opium as the thing they brought to us. Right. In fact, the government was doing a, you know, opium only grows on the other side of the Himalayas. You don't grow opium poppies in China. And because there's the biggest mountain range in the world in a way, opium did not catch on in China until European ships started. Pl- I mean, I'm sure there, and I'm sure there were local Local smugglers making their money as well, but you got to go all the way around Indochina. And when we say India, at that point in time, that was also Pakistan. Right. And Afghanistan, really. Which I is mean, where opium poppies still grow today. Right. Yes. And all, all part of the British Empire. And so this environment of, ooh, who's going to be the first tea clipper back in port um, actually creates this weird culture where there is a, a sports-like journalism around uh, – who's the fastest and who's going to win cults of celebrity around the captains of the ships who, who become like, I mean, you'd think it would just be, you know, who's got the, who's got the fastest ship and the best designed hull or whatever, but apparently it's, and that's what I thought about like car racing when I was a kid, you know, right, right. Oh, well look at the speedometer, see whose car goes the fastest. That's who's going to win the Indy 500. And it was explained to me, no, 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 there's actually a lot of skill to the driving. And, right. uh, and so it was the same with these ships where, uh, the captains of the ships were like celebrities. They were like Formula One racers who were admired for both their temperament and their skill. Right. And also it's like if Formula One cars were also delivering cocaine. <laughs> Boy, what a what a dull timeline we live in that we don't have Formula One cars. <laughs> Hello. Well, you know, I guess that you know, uh stock car racing comes from moonshiners and blockade runners. So really it did start with hot rod cars that were that had Let's do it for addiction, creating all the beautiful transportation. Yeah, all the great races, fetishes of today. Well, you know, think about uh, think about races. Ham Ham Solo making the Kessel Run in uh, only uh, seventy four parsecs. Or is, whatever. is it canon that spice is is a uh, chemi- well, spice is what makes space travel possible? Ken. But is it psychoactive? What do you do with spice the when you spice? have it? I've never seen. I mean, I know he's bringing spice, but are they just putting it in paella when oh. he, when he gets it to Mos Eisley, or I, or, I, or is somebody anybody getting high on it? I always assume that it is the same spice as in the, Dune as the spice that makes <laughs> space travel possible. Yeah, it's Dune spice. Wait, I don't know why spice makes Spain t- space. Is it fuel? Have you ever read the book Dune? Uh, no. Had, did you ever see the movie I, Dune? Yes, but I have only but the vaguest memories of it, and it was—it might <laughs> yeah. have been the longer one that David Lynch took his name off of. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's it's fairly garbled in the movie, but uh, and believe me, I'm no Dune expert. But please, Dune, explain to me what spice does. Spice makes you high. Okay, so it is a, and then it makes space travel possible. I I'm not sure. Look, look, listen. You, you've been high, and I know it does make a certain kind of space travel possible, but not literal interstellar exploration. Well, but maybe I wasn't high enough. 
You just needed more spice. That's the thing about getting high. You can always get a little higher. Uh, so you've got this, um, you've got this environment where the captains are celebrities, and then people are betting. It's it's also a a, a sports betting market on who's going to get there in time. And this is not just <clears throat> like stock exchange, you know, people investing in which company. There's a, there's literally people making side bets like it's a horse race. Let me ask you this. In 1870, when presumably this is all happening. All set in the yeah, mid to late 1860s. Is telegraph technology global enough that these sports bettors could be tracing the progress of the Cuddy Sark through the Straits of Malacca around uh, South Africa? Like, could they be sending messages that were reaching London faster than the ship itself. I think that is true. I think the answer is yes, because journalists are dispatched to follow these annual spring tea races. And it wouldn't make any, you know, if nothing can go faster than a clipper ship, how is word getting right. back? Like uh, <laughs> at the end of the race, it'll be like, boy, you guys would not believe how exciting this was in the Strait of Formosa. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll describe it to you. So there would, there would have been spotters. There would have been. The morning paper would say like, you know, there, you know, the ships are, are now just a day apart as they enter the Indian ocean or as they round the Cape of Good Hope. So it's like a, it's like the Dakar race or, a, right. you know, just writ incredibly large, like a full hemisphere of traveling. Um, as I said, the ships may be beautiful, but life aboard them sucked, you know, cause you're just by design, you are just up going and up and down and up. Yeah. Side I guess side. podcast viewers cannot see what my arm is doing up and down. Let me, let me, you, let you, me, uh, you do the descriptive do audio play text. By play. Ken is waving his arm up and down. So everybody's just throwing up all the time. Uh, without, you know, they don't have modern navigation. So even old salts, even the most experienced old, salts and limes and tequilas just spend the whole time barfing on one of these if, if the seas are, are rowdy. Um, and uh, the most famous of these races, the one that we call the Great Tea Race, by the way, this was suggested by a listener, Angus Wilson. Oh. I think is the name. The email I got said August Wilson, late playwright August Wilson. Uh-huh. I don't think that's correct. Well, this is one of the last things he did. Yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> he, he anticipated the omnibus. Having already written a, a brilliant cycle of 10 plays about African-American life in Pittsburgh, I would now like to know what John and Ken think about uh-huh. clipper ships. The great tea race. <laughs> uh, so, the, so Angus wanted to know about the great tea race, which even though it was an annual thing, often refers to a very specific race that happened in 1866 from Fuzhou, China, to London, uh, still remembered as the greatest sailing contest of all time, partly just because the outcome was very exciting. Um, there were four ships, uh, the brand new Ariel on its very first voyage, uh, skippered by a Captain Kie, who's kind of a, a cool, cool-tempered veteran. Yeah. Uh, he's not surprised by anything. Steely-eyed. Who, who are we going to get to play him in the, the movie that we're going to make about this great um, T-race? Maybe Russell Crowe, but maybe he needs to, to hit the gym. Russell Crowe, but in the but but gym body Russell Crowe. Yeah, I don't okay. know the ages of these guys. Okay. Then there's the fiery cross, uh, skippered by Captain Robinson, who is who is a real uh, kind of fiery, hot tempered guy. Sure. I, you can imagine the broken blood vessels and the yeah. nose and cheeks. He's got a shillelagh that's like his. <laughs> his... He's got a name for it. Oh, yeah. This is Bridget. Look out. <laughs> And they have won the race in 61, 62, 63, and 65. So they're kind of the, what, the presumptive favorite, the New England Patriots. 
Um, then there's the Serica, which won, captained by Captain Innes, which won the only race in that in that span of time the Firecross did not win. They won in 1864. A lot it, of Scots here. Yeah, Innes it, it's, and Robinson. They're all Scots, basically. And I don't know the... I don't know how to explain it. Is that just where the shipbuilding was? Well, or? I mean, the, the yards would still be open on the Klein, right? This was... As, the, as discussed in a recent <laughs> addendum. This was, the, uh, this was the Glasgow era and Aberdeen era, but... but Something I'll, about Mark Knopfler. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, this... This, I mean, it might have been the Presbyterianism. They're hardy, they're, yeah, yeah. If you're if you're Presbyterian, mm-hmm. that just makes you want to seek out what a uh, salt spray in your face and yeah. unpleasant, flagellate yourself with the with the wind and the and the waves. Yeah, it's God's punishment. He makes you barf all the way across the <laughs> the, the globe. Maybe they're just hardy. You know, yeah. they've they've grown up on thistles, just eating thistle and uh, and really tough mutton. In our day, we think of ship captains all being from either, I mean, European ship captains being from the Netherlands or Greece. Oh, yes. Uh, but maybe the Scots were the original. Well, that's because today you want more of a chill guy coming over the intercom every morning and telling you what the shuffleboard schedule is. Right. That's That explains the Dutch thing. It doesn't explain the Greek thing. <laughs> oh, you, th- th- that guy's angry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, and then who's the who's the last? Oh, and I was going to say, Captain Innes is kind of the bad, the bad seed here. He's a taskmaster, oh. just temper, yell, always yelling at his guys. He drinks really heavily. So he's wearing like a like a like a Quaker hat, but um, but <laughs> right. it's, but it, but he's not a Quaker. Captain Ahab, yeah. basically Ahab, right? Uh, and then there's the Tay Ping. Am I getting this right? He's uh, Chinese. No, the ship has a Chinese oh, name because of its. It's a tea running. I was going to say, this story took a wild turn. Finally. One of the captains is Chinese? This is multiculturalism. <laughs> Three Scots and a Chinaman walk into a tea race. Uh, we don't say Chinaman, by the way. That's no. a pure that, that's a That was a joke formula that he was making a reference to. Right. And also set in the late 1860s when they would have said. That's what they would have said. Historical right. accuracy that's still right. matters. That's right. Uh, the taping is the fourth ship. It's captained by Captain McKinnon. Uh-huh. An old, well, thank goodness there's some diversity in this Stereotypical story. <laughs> old Scottish sea dog. Yeah, I think it might just be four Scots. Um, those are the four kinds of sea captains there are. The and, four Scots, it's one of my favorite t- uh, pubs. <laughs> so the betting markets of Hong Kong are going crazy about this, uh, you know, this exciting rematch uh, for, you know, for the Fiery Cross and the Serica, then the brand new Ariel and the Taiping. And is this a thing where the race starts at the fields? Like, are they racing to load the ships, or are they all loaded and then they leave at the same time? No, they're racing in a river, and uh, it's up to the, you know, a lot of it is just the logistics of who can get their ship loaded first. And in in this case, the aerial gets loaded first, pays off a tugboat, and gets out of port a full day before the race is supposed to start. And, you know, and that's, we're just supposed to applaud Captain Kie's ingenuity here. It pisses off uh, the Serica. Captain Innes just leaves without doing any of his paperwork or bill of lading. Right. Um, but the Ariel's eagerness to get to see um, backfires. It's, it turns out it picked the wrong tug. It gets stranded by a falling tide behind the bar of the river. The tug can't get it. They have to wait till the next day. And by the time they leave, uh, the other ships have caught up. Oh, this feels like the start of Cannonball Run. <laughs> it basically is the f- original Cannonball Run, yes. Uh, the ships basically can stay in sight of each other because now they're, they've all got top of the line technology. 
they are, uh, you know, they're all contending with the same tides and winds and waves. Uh, this so, is an exciting race. So from Taiwan all the way to St. Helena, they're like only like uh, maybe a, they're within sight of each other many places and never more than a day or two apart. Wow. Uh, and, you know, they cr- pass the Cape of Good Hope. And, you know, there's whole, there's probably weeks that, you know, this thing lasts over three months. So there's probably whole weeks where nobody knows what's happening in the race. You know, it's like some part of a car race that takes place in a tunnel. Right. And who knows what order they're going to emerge in. Wow. And it, so it, it it really came down to what? The skill of the captain and the design of the the hull. They say that a good captain could add half a knot of average speed to it. So maybe a good analogy is like a horse and a jockey where, you know, you're mostly measuring the horse, but everybody knows a bad jockey can kill you. Whereas a good jockey might put you over the top. Right. Just some degree of skill and experience. So half a knot, I mean, that would over time, that would do it. Um, But I guess these four Scots are so good that by the time the ships are resighted passing the Azores, which I think may be the first time they're sighted after rounding South Africa. Right. Um, they are all together, basically. Like you can see all four together at the Azores. Wow. On the other no side. No wonder of the world. this is a famous race. It's really, uh, it's an exciting, you know, and this, in, a, in an age without anything else going on, can you imagine? This is like, <laughs> these people have never seen a double overtime NBA game. Uh, 97 days after leaving Fuzhou, they enter uh, the English Channel and then the Thames. At this point, the Ariel is in the lead, but it's only 10 minutes ahead of the Taiping. Uh, and those two are only two hours ahead of the Serica. The Fiery Cross, commanded by the uh, angry Captain Robinson and, you know, four-time champion, is a full day and a half behind, and he is pissed. Wow. So they come, the Taiping and the Ariel in the lead come racing down the Thames essentially together, just minutes apart. And the Taiping beats, but even though Ariel is in the lead when they enter the Thames, Apparently they haven't really, because it's mostly a public relations race, you'd think the betting tables would have had rules, but uh, the Ariel entered the Thames first, but the taping got to the dock 25 minutes ahead of the Ariel. You know, after a 97-day race, beats them by 25 minutes. And the captains, I guess, motivated by Presbyterian severity and fairness, agree to split the 10% premium because one ship got to the Thames first, the other got to, made it to dock first due to the vagaries of of uh, what, lading and tugboats and whatnot. It would seem that the 10% premium was there as an incentive, um, but also like the advantage of having the T first. But if all four ships get there within an hour... Right, then it's just bragging rights, Yeah, right, right? the 10% premium is that you, you doesn't get the think tea of to all the those, shops. No, think about, have you ever really wanted a cup of tea? Think about a British person who needs... His or her tea right. at 3 p.m. He can't wait for the fire. The fiery cross is 36 hours behind. Right. He, he would even have to wait two more hours for the Serica. Like he's thirsty now. He wants that tea. Well, and also he gets to say he's got the he's got first tea. Yes. Right. He's got the he's got the good stuff. It's it's, it's 20 minutes fe- uh, fresher. At, you're you're right though. At this point where they're only divided by hours. It really does come down to just uh, the glamour of right. of who won the, the most exciting tea race in the history of the world. The other reason why this is remembered, in addition to the photo finish, is because it was kind of the last hurrah of the golden age of sail. Um, the Cuddy Sark was completed, I think, in 1869. That very same year, the Suez Canal opened. 
Oh. And that was what did it. You know, because steamships already existed. The problem was the technology wasn't quite there. You know, over long distances, a clipper ship could uh, could still outpace a steamship. But then two things happened. The steam engines got a little more efficient all the way through the 1860s. You know, just, I guess better pressure um, leading to higher speeds. And then when the Suez Canal opened, suddenly the journey from Europe to Asia, 4,000 miles gets cut off and it drops from 16,000 to 12,000 and clipper ships have a hard time getting through the canal. Right. Of course they would. They're too tall that, you know, they can, they can do it with a series of tugboats and I don't know, what do you, are there other names for other kinds of little helper ships that would helper ships? Yeah. That's the, that's, that's the nautical term. That's what we call them. Little helper ships. Um, but that's expensive and it's not super fast. Whereas a, a you know, a steamship can just plow the Suez canal like nothing. And, as a result, now a steamship getting through the Suez Canal can easily beat any clipper ship going around the, uh, the Cape of Good Hope. So uh, uh, just to clarify, the Great Tea Race was in 1866. The Cuddy Sark was built in 1869. So the Cuddy Sark yes. had played no role in the Great Tea it's Race. It's the most famous ship of the period and the one you can still see up close right you know, it's kind of the symbol of the tea trade it's the it is in the style of the right. ships of the great tea race right and it's it's you know it's it's kind of the grandest apogee of that you know it's the apotheosis of you know the Ariel, the fiery cross the serica and the taping were were the you know they were among the greatest clipper ships of their time the cutty sark was kind of the big fancy is there a car world analogy for for this well sure it's the uh, it's the bugatti Veron. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess I meant whatever whatever the biggest most beautiful finned seventies car was right before the oil crisis hit. You oh know? yeah, right. The the big the what was the what is the fattest? It's got to be like a the Mercury big, Marquis or yeah, a, the the Lincoln uh, Lincoln Continental. Yeah, it's, Mark yeah, it's, it's like a Lincoln Continental yeah. exactly. Where you know nobody could imagine anything better, and then the fundamentals of fuel changed right. and suddenly you want a little ugly steamship or a little Honda. God, I'm looking at a painting right now of the Ariel with every one of those moonrakers like fully furled or fur, fur, fully unfurled. That's right. You don't want to furl them. No. And uh, it really is a, it's just a miracle. We still have it today. This fascination, like, you know, even though we now have beautiful, you know, we're used to every train car and plane having these beautiful curves. There's just something about a ship and sail. Cause it looks like clouds, I guess right, there's right. something heavenly about it that we don't really, that none of our other transportation aspires to. Well, and the, and the fuel is free. <laughs> that's right. Right. I mean, that's what a steamship doesn't have. A steamship is reliant on the, the trade of coal. And, and if you run out of coal, you run out. Clipper ships were the original renewable energy. Yeah, right. Where was who's the Elon Musk of clipper ships? I'm sure some angry, some, <laughs> some ang angry, Scot some angry Scottish guy. <laughs> and that concludes the Great Tea Race, entry five four eight JM zero three zero four, certificate number three eight six four six, in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, truly it is the most elegant and beautiful of all the ships of our current world of Do you think quick communication. Instagram or TikTok is like the Lincoln Continental of uh, of social media right before it collapses. Right, surely there's a surely there's a um, 
like a Suez Canal of social media that's just about to open. What's it going to be? What Tel- is go- what's going to cut the static? Uh, telepathy. Mental telepathy. Thank you, Ken. Once I can just send you beam selfies into your brain, you will never have to look at my wall again. So the Elon Musk is going to be Uri Geller? <laughs> Did you see that Uri Geller just settled his um settled his uh, lawsuit with the Pokemon company? No. I guess there's a Pokemon that Uri Geller has long contended is too closely based on him. It looks like him. <laughs> he thinks this Pokemon is based on him. And it has a bent spoon. But I guess also he feels there's a, a physiognomic well, now, wait a minute. It has a bent spoon? I do. I, I feel like maybe I'm siding with Mr. Geller here. Well, uh, he apparently settled. He got a, finally got a check from, from Pokemon. Feels and, like bent spoon. If that's going to be your, your sigil, uh, <laughs> it's really just one guy. Does that mean the Matrix paid off uh, Yuri Geller? to pay off Yuri Geller just to bend a spoon? He can't oh. own the idea of bending a spoon. No, that's true. And it's kind of a heroin thing, too. A, the bent <laughs> spoon is sort of a heroin emblem. <laughs> so you think David Crosby is going to sue Pokemon? <laughs> um, I would avoid social media if I were you. But if you're there, if you're already there, why not check out at Omnibus Project on all the social media feeds? It'll tell you all about the episodes of our show, and um, you can go to uh, at Ken Jennings and at John Roddick to see the latest news on our Twitter feeds. Uh, uh, you know, I'm I'm on there struggling to uh, be funny. Ken is effortlessly funny there. Uh, you can find out all his latest game show news. Game show nudes. All all of my fame. Uh, all, all of my game show nudes. Right. Um, which, and which show? Uh, you can go to uh, my Instagram account. I'm on there, uh, DMing people uh, un- unrequested nudes all the time. Uh, you can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can uh, check out our Futurelings group on Facebook and Discord and Reddit. Also, uh, unofficial gathering places. Unofficial gathering places, cannot, but we, very. We can endorse. I'm sure everything said there. Active communities of of enthusiastic uh, science based life forms. Um, also, I highly recommend uh, Omnibus Out of Context on Twitter. On Twitter. They uh, whoever runs that account. Oh find, yeah, I don't even know who it is. The Nameless Heroes. Yeah, they they find a way to listen to old episodes and take out sort of non sequiturs. And tweet about them. I, I I look at it every day. Even if they're just listening to old episodes, I mean that's that's a real sacrifice. <laughs> Thank you for your service. Well, no, at the end of the year, you you mentioned it earlier. Uh, all those streaming services are happy to send out to their listeners the sort of like, here's the thing you listen to the most. I think it's counterproductive. Every time I see those, I'm like. Dear God, I've wasted my life. <laughs> like, like, do you really want to tell somebody, hey, good news, you listened to Spotify for like thirty eight thousand minutes this yeah. year. Well, it, it infuriates me because, you know, I see all my friends post their, um, like, these are the top five bands I listened to this year. And I'm like, the National, really, still? I don't even <laughs> see the Long Winters on that list. Did you see somebody sent you that he was in the top 0.1% of Long Winters listeners this year? Yeah. I was going to reply, oh, cool, you listened to two songs. Yeah. And then I thought, that's womp, mean. Womp. So mean. You and three other people. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been getting a lot of those, and they make me feel great. Thank that's you. awesome. Thank you. There was, there, was a, there was one person that was like in the top of the Western State Hurricanes listeners, which Ooh. made me feel, again, that's got to be a, a, a much smaller list. But Well, somebody's got to be on top. Did you do the P.O. Box? Uh, no, not yet. You can send us uh, physical media uh, and all kinds of uh, your granddad's clothes and old banana peels, although don't send banana peels, to P.O. Box 55744, 
Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Looks like you got some mail over there, Ken. I'm opening the mail right now. We got a postcard from Maconda, Illinois, it looks like. Did mm-hmm. we mention Maconda on the show? Almost certainly. Well, on the back it says Maconda forever. Maconda forever. Maconda must be loving their new... Uh, their new hip association with the Marvel Comics universe. Yeah, I'm not sure. Thank you, Kathy. Yeah, that's beautiful. Maconda looks like it has a traditional American Main Street. It still does, or that's an old picture, and now this is a CVS. I have no idea. Uh, we also got, the, you, you are going to love this. Hollis was going through, I lost the cover letter. I used to have a, a big crush on a girl named Hollis. Uh, she... This, I guess I assumed this Hollis was a male Hollis, but who knows? I do not know Hollis's pronouns possible hollis was helping an elderly neighbor downsize because she the neighbor is moving and hollis found you're gonna love this a copy of the seattle times from july 21st 1969 <gasps> man walks on man moon. walks on moon. oh wow this just oh, in look at that oh and it's like uh, it's the perfect sort of just a little bit yellowed and foxed if you want some ads for Ernst or Pay and Save. Look at that. Do you remember Ernst? You, oh, I do what remember a great Ernst. hardware store. Remember when the U Village was just a place you'd go to go to the hardware go store the hardware instead store. of Swarovski? I, you know, we went to the Ernst on 99 up at up in Shoreline. Should we see what's on TV Ernst. tonight besides the moon landing? Yeah. Let's see. Uh, Donald O'Connor and Piper Laurie in The Milkman. Oh, Adam's Family. Good. So, oh, this is pre-Rural Purge, right? S- Sixty-nine. Uh, let's see. Are there any? Yeah, Mayberry RFD is still on at nine on uh, Channel Seven. Which... Is, is Laugh In? Do you see Laugh In on there? Well, it's going to be whatever's on on Monday nights. I'm oh, sorry. Monday nights. So you got the Rat Patrol on CBS. Uh, Jack Benny, The Lucy Show. Looks like a good gun smoke. Oh, I dream of Jeannie. Jeannie blinks and the house turns invisible. Uh-oh. Winky, 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 Can you imagine winky. turning away from the moon landing to watch this? Oh, Mr. Freeze is going to be on Batman. <laughs> I would assume a lot of this would get preempted. Soupy Sales and Alan Alda were on What's My Line? You ever seen Alan Alda on What's My Line? Was Alan Alda a, 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 a TV personality before MASH? His, yes, I think so, because his... De- I mean, this is not that far before MASH. 69, I mean, what did MASH start? 72? 72, right. So this is just before MASH. And his dad was an actor, so I'm sure he's he's done stage or whatever. <laughs> and NBC's Movie of the Week, an adaptation of Terrace Bulba with Yul Brenner and Tony Curtis. Oh, that's not... Yeah, that's a, that's a theatrical release, just not a very good one. Family Affair was still on in 1969. Well, let's just do another hour of the show where we go through this and do the jumble. Oh, it's so beautiful. Does it smell like an old newspaper? It's pretty good. Mm. Newspapers used to be so big. Look at how big this newspaper is. He said, Ken, I didn't want to feel left out, so my daughter drew you this picture. But I got to say, unless it fell out, I don't see the picture. Maybe it's in the newspaper. I'm just going to, yeah, it could be tucked into the paper somewhere. Oh, wait, was this, did he give this specifically to me? That is is to you. Oh, wow. Look at that. I thought it would probably find a happy home among John's historic memorabilia. Very cool. Thank wow. you, Hollis and company. It says right there, and it, this is really interesting. There's there's extra blue ink on this. This is the night final. And uh, the blue ink on either side says, because of what you have done, the heavens have become a part of man's world. Is it talking to me? That's a very, no, I think to Neil Armstrong. That's very inspiring. And then, who, and who is speaking? The Seattle Times or President? Is that Nixon, Nixon? that said that? Because Every time Nixon spoke, it was in blue in the paper. Because of what you have done, 
That's a bad Nixon. That's impression. your Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Not a crook. The, the, know, the it, Jews are uh, <laughs> trying to keep us from going to the moon. That's a pretty good one. It used to be we all had Nixon impressions in our impression <laughs> folder, and I've lost mine. I feel like Mayor Quimby brought back Kennedy, but now nobody does Nixon. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's my Nixon impression. And then on the other side, it says that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And this is definitive. It There's no say, A. Oh, man. Now, that's revisionist history from NASA. <laughs> Do you, uh, and did you mention oh, the Patreon? And then, uh, please, if you like more of this incredible content. <laughs> Do you want to hear another? <laughs> what if there was a podcast that was just somebody looking at an old newspaper for half an hour and being like, oh, here's the bridge column. Hey, look at uh, popsicles are on sale for nine cents. Uh, if there, If that is a possibility, you will find it here. At Omnibus, and you can support the show, and we we greatly appreciate it by uh, by giving uh, a little bit at patreon.com slash omnibus project. That's what Angus Wilson did, and he got a whole uh, show about clipper ships. Yeah, well that's, done, Angus. Apparently, and, that's what he's into. And well done, you. Angus seems like a Scottish name as well. Do you think he's it like? Do you think he's the ghost of an old salty sea dog who has uh, somehow found fifty dollars of doubloons to donate Arr. to donate to our Patreon? I was on the cutty sark. <laughs> now I haunt the internet. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. Like the golden age of sail, the end could be abrupt. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus. <laughs> <laughs>